This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. And we're joining you on a Saturday afternoon in New York City as we're just getting into a huge sports weekend in the city. Yanks and Mets both getting underway within minutes from now. And then tomorrow, a couple of big playoff games. Nets game four tomorrow afternoon in Milwaukee. Leading that series two games to one. Isles, Tampa Bay, game one tomorrow. Isles once again one step away from the Stanley Cup Finals as they have reached the NHL's version of the Final Four. And, of course, last night, another gem by Jacob deGrom. And I'm sitting watching this game last night. Great atmosphere at City Field. Uh, they opened up the uh, attendance to allow the most fans that they've had there since 2019, apropos that it was Jacob deGrom on the mound against a really good team in the San Diego Padres. A couple of former Cy Young Award winners, Blake Snell for San Diego, DeGrom for the Mets, throwing zeros at each other. And DeGrom, once again, is doing what DeGrom does. I mean, completely mowing down the Padres. Pitched to the minimum 18 batters through six innings. Two-run single to give the Mets a 3-0 lead. So driving in two of the three runs that they scored when he was on the mound. Then, of course, the seventh inning comes and. Jacob DeGrom is nowhere to be seen. 80 pitches, six innings, out of the game just like that. And you know, and then, of course, Miguel Castro comes on, gives up a two-run home run. It's 3-2. to two, And you, you just, you're just so frustrated watching this. Are they going to do this to this guy again and again and again? I mean, how much more, seriously, how much more can one pitcher do? And it's funny because I got into a conversation earlier this week about who are the biggest sports stars in New York right now. And I'm of the firm belief that we're on the verge of kind of a sports renaissance in New York City. And look, the success of the teams right now bears that out. You have the Nets, the favorites to win the NBA championship. They're two wins away from going to the Eastern Conference Finals. You have the Islanders right now in basically the Conference Finals, one step away from the Stanley Cup. The Knicks back in the playoffs this year. The Mets in first place. The Yankees, yes, they've been disappointing, but are we ready to count them out? No, absolutely not. Even the Giants and the Jets and the Rangers, on some levels, you're seeing improvement from those teams. But it's, it's, it's not based on the team's success, maybe outside of the Islanders, but it's based on the stars. That's why I think we're on the verge of this New York sports renaissance, because last decade was rough, right? Last decade in New York was really rough. We had, we had one championship. It was the Giants after the 2011 season winning the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 46 in 2012. Beyond that, yeah, the Rangers go to the Stanley Cup Finals in 14. The Devils went to the Stanley Cup Finals in 12. And the Mets went to the World Series in 2015. And then you couple that, of course, with the success that that city to the north of us was having in Boston with the Bruins winning a Stanley Cup, the Celtics always in the mix, the Patriots doing what they do, the Red Sox winning a couple of World Series last decade. It wasn't a good decade. And, and, and I am of the firm belief that we're starting to turn things around. And, and the reason for that is the stars that we have performing in New York right now. And if you think about it, because I got into a conversation with someone, we were ranking who are the top five stars in New York right now based solely on their on-field or on-court performance or on-ice performance, not based on star power, not based on potential. So I put together my top five list, and I had Julius Randle. I mean, you have to have him on a top five list, in my opinion, right now for what he just did. He brought the Knicks to the playoffs. He put up a stat line that only five other players in NBA history had done. 
you know, I had Matt Barzell because I felt like it was important to have an Islander on the list. They are one of the top teams in the NHL. And even though they're a, a collection, uh, it's more of a collective effort from the Islander standpoint. Barzell is the most talented and the best player on that team. I have Garrett Cole. In my opinion, Garrett Cole's the second best pitcher in Major League Baseball right now. And that's where I started to think who is the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. It, it doesn't take long to think who it is. But I thought back to before last season, and, and I'm talking about spring training last season of 2020. So this is pre-COVID. This is pre-Major League Baseball being shut down. And the Yankees had just signed Garrett Cole to the huge nine-year contract. Jacob DeGrom was coming off back-to-back -back years as the National League Cy Young Award winner. Cole was coming off his best season with the Houston Astros, the best season of what's been a very good career. And the spring training debate was, Who's the best pitcher in New York? Is it Garrett Cole or is it Jacob DeGrom? And Garrett Cole was pretty good for the Yankees last year. He got off to a bit of a slow start. By the end of the season, he was very good once again. He's been outstanding this year. But with all due respect to Garrett Cole, there's no comparison. I mean, Jacob DeGrom, it's now a foregone conclusion, and it has been for quite some time, that Jacob DeGrom is the best pitcher in baseball. And the evolution of DeGrom is so interesting because, you know, we, 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 we think back to the middle of last decade when, when Sandy Alderson, you know, built this Mets farm system based on these exciting young arms. Obviously, Matt Harvey was the headliner. He traded Carlos Beltran to bring in Zach Wheeler. You had Steven Matz in the pipeline. You get Noah Syndergaard in the Travis Darno trade, in the, in the R.A. Dickey trade. And DeGrom was pretty much an afterthought. You know, he comes up, he's good right away. First game against the Yankees, whoa, this guy is pretty good. He's got long hair. It's kind of funny looking. He's pretty good. Rookie of the year. They go to the World Series. Then he's an all-star. And then he's a Cy Young Award winner. And then he's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. And literally, it felt like the blink of an eye within four years. Is Jacob DeGrom the best pitcher in baseball? And it was kind of hard to wrap your brain around it because he wasn't one of these blue-chip prospects. And now he's absolutely the best pitcher in baseball, but he's more than that. I mean, Jacob DeGrom is one of the best pitchers ever. He's one of the best pitchers ever. In my lifetime of following sports as a serious fan, and for that, I go back to 1985 to 1988. I'll be 42 years old later this month. First World Series I ever remember being aware of was 85, the Royals over the Cardinals. And then by 88, I'm all in on baseball. I was about eight, nine years old. All right, so that's basically the time frame we're working with here. In my lifetime, Jacob deGrom is the best pitcher that I've ever seen in my life. It was Pedro Martinez for a long time, Randy Johnson right behind Pedro by an eyelash. But what Jacob deGrom is doing right now is better than what both of those guys did. This is the best I've ever seen it done. And that spans, what are we talking about, going back to 85? That spans 35 years. That's a pretty significant period of time. Now, I'm not going to get into the Bob Gibsons and the Tom Seavers and the Sandy Koufaxes because I didn't see those guys pitch. All I can speak to is what I've seen. And I've seen everybody come through from about 86, 87 until now. DeGrom does it better than anyone who I've seen. 
which brings me back to the initial conversation I was having about who are the biggest sports stars in New York. Because there's another sports star in New York who's one of the all-time greats in his sport. And that's Kevin Durant. And that leads me to my point that we are on the verge of a New York sports renaissance in this town. It's already happening. I mean, look, a month and a half from now, we could be celebrating a Stanley Cup championship and an NBA championship for a New York team with the Mets on their way to the playoffs, with the Yankees possibly on their way to the playoffs, with the Knicks moving in the right direction. It happens fast. It happened fast for Boston. Boston was a city of losers for two decades, mainly because of what the Red Sox couldn't accomplish. And now all of a sudden, last decade, they couldn't lose. So it happens fast. And the fact that we have Kevin Durant and the fact that we have Jacob DeGrom in this town right now at the peak of their powers, Durant may be a half a step beyond the peak of his powers, and DeGrom has never been better. And how do I know he's never been better? Because I've never seen anybody better than he is right now. I mean, think about this. Bob Gibson, 1968, the year of the pitcher. Pitching was so good in 1968, they changed the rules. They lowered the height of the mound to give the batters more of a chance. That's how dominant pitching was then. And Bob Gibson had an ERA of 1.12. And I know it's only 10 starts, but Jacob DeGrom's ERA right now, 0.56. Exactly half of what Bob Gibson's ERA was in the year of the pitcher in 1968. 10 straight starts for DeGrom, allowing one earned run or fewer. That's the longest streak in Major League Baseball since Bob Gibson in the year of the pitcher in 1968. So we're seeing some historical stuff here. And when you look back on recent New York sports history, how often do we have the opportunity in this town to have the best or one of the best to ever do it in his sport performing here in our town? Yeah, you had Lawrence Taylor in the 1980s. And what happened? The Giants won two Super Bowl championships. The Yankees, for 20 years, had two of the best at their respective positions of all time. Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera. And they won five World Series championships. The Devils had one of the best goalies of all time for a couple of decades. Martin Brodeur, they win three Stanley Cup championships. Well, right now, the Mets have it and the Nets have it. Now, when you have it, you got to follow through on it. So the goal for the Nets clearly is... NBA championship or bust, with or without James Harden. I mean, look how good they were without Harden in games one and two against Milwaukee. They took a step back in game three. We'll see what happens tomorrow in game four. That goal should be the same for the Mets because what we're seeing right now from Jacob deGrom is special. It's more than special. It's one of the best to ever do it in the history of of Major League Baseball. Now, he left after six innings and 80 pitches. It turns out he had the right flexor tendonitis. Uh, Louis Rojas saying today that the Mets do expect DeGrom to make his next start. He took a precautionary MRI. It showed no problems. So we keep Jacob DeGrom on track to make his next start. And thank God, because what he is doing right now, we've never seen this before. Sports fans, Mets fans, baseball fans, all of us. We've never seen this before. So we don't want to take this guy out of the lineup for any period of time. Okay, because this is special and it's not going to last forever. So you want to capitalize on it when it is happening. And right now, it's happening at a higher level than it ever has.
Shadow Keith back with you, 98.7 ESPN New York. Just getting started with you on a Saturday afternoon. You know, this time of year, our next guest does not have a lot of downtime between travel, preparing for NBA playoff games, broadcasting for NBA playoff games. So it's really nice of Mike Breen, the voice of the NBA, to take a few minutes. Mike, it's great to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for making the time today. Oh, my pleasure, Pat. Actually, you know, had a couple of days in between games in Milwaukee. The weather's beautiful here, so uh, do have a little chance to relax the last couple of days. All been, all good, though. You know, a lot of people, Mike, liken that game 3-86-83 to a throwback of the Knicks Heat series in the late 90s, early 2000s. Of course, you had a front row seat to those. Your partner, Jeff Van Gundy, certainly had a front row seat to those. Mark Jackson, to a certain extent, did as well. What were you guys thinking as that game was unfolding before you on Thursday night? Well, here you have the, the one team, the Brooklyn Nets, who this year set the NBA record all time for offensive rating. Then you have the other team, the Milwaukee Bucks, who led the NBA in scoring. And here we have a game in the 80s in an age of the NBA random or routinely having games in the 120s and the 130s. So, you know, it was just so unusual to see, especially from these two great offensive teams. Um, So you have to give a lot of credit to the defense um, because both teams really got after each other and played good, hard physical defense. And the other thing thing I thought, Pat, was, you know, we're in a time in the NBA where the way the rules are set up, it's it's more advantageous to the offensive team. But I kind of like the way the officials let them play. Now, you know, were there some calls you could argue about? Sure. But but I thought they let them play quite a bit. And that's what really reminded me is the way the game was officiated was a little more. Okay, this is playoff basketball. You got to deal with a little more contact. Also, are we finally starting to see crowds become a factor in these playoff series again? Obviously, we were without them last year when the restart happened in Orlando and throughout most of this regular season. But if you look at the way Brooklyn dominated those first two games, it's almost hard to explain Milwaukee winning game three and playing that well without the crowd being at least some sort of a factor. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Pat. And it's it's not easy. There's certainly no definitive answer, but uh, there's no doubt it has an impact. Now, you know, for a home team, it can be so inspiring, uh, especially if, you know, say you fall behind or you're in a tough spot and you need just a little extra juice and, you know, you've, you've played 35-plus minutes and you're a little tired, they can, they can do that. And there's no question, too, that, you know, for the road team, you feel a little bit more pressure. You go to the free-throw line, you get the chance, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also the school of there are a lot of players, um, and, and I've asked this question to a lot of players over the years, what would you rather do? Would you rather hit a game-winning shot on your home floor and the crowd explodes or hit a game-winning shot on the road and you silence the crowd? And and I would say, Pat, and this surprised me, I would say 95% of the players I've asked this question to choose silencing the road crowd. So there are a lot of players out there uh, that actually play better on the road when there's a hostile environment and, and they embrace it and it motivates them. So, you know, so much of it is, is it different from, from player to player, uh, but there's no question it adds a different element. Uh, it's more enjoyable to be in the arena. It's more enjoyable to be, to be watching at home and hear this, you know, a crazy fan base uh, losing it during the course of a game and just going wild in, in celebration. So um, it does have an impact. 
But there are some players that will tell you that they play better on the road when there's a crowd screaming at them. Mike Breen, kind enough to spend a few minutes with us on this Saturday afternoon. He'll be on the call for Nets Bucks game four, three Eastern time tomorrow on ABC. Nets a two games to one lead in that series. You know, Mike, the last decade for you, um, you know, you were camped out in places like Miami and, and Cleveland and Golden State. So many great dynasties or mini dynasties in the NBA over the last decade. I think a cool part of this year's playoffs is there's so much new blood. I mean, how, how different of a feeling is it for you with all these teams that haven't won in decades or in some cases have never won an NBA championship at all? Well, first off, it, it, and this goes a little bit back to your, to your last question too. When you talk about fan bases of these teams that have not been this far and, and have a chance to do something they haven't done, there's there's such exhilaration in those cities about their teams. So so that's a cool part of it. And it is nice to see different teams have a chance and different players uh, who have never competed for a title or never been to the NBA Finals. Um, that, that's always really fun. Do I miss some of the players that have been here year after year? Do I miss watching a, a legendary player like LeBron James? Absolutely. Um, you know, you don't know how much longer he's going to play. So to watch a player of that magnitude, uh, it's always, I always feel it's a, an honor and a privilege. Same thing with a, with a player like Steph Curry um, and, and being able to watch him. But that's the beauty of the NBA. And, and, you know, there's so many talented players. And we've seen some of these younger players, like a Devin Booker, what he's been able to do. Um, it's, just, it's just so much fun to watch. It's, it, one of my favorite things about the sport is watching a team early in the season and watching them then later in the season and in the playoffs and how they've developed and how they've gone from being a team that – has potential to a team that reaches their potential and often uh, overachieves past what anybody expected of them. And we've seen a few of those with the teams today. And, and watching teams like Utah and Phoenix in a year that was so different and, and at times so challenging, uh, be able to have that consistency all season long in a tough Western Conference and finish one and two and now still playing great basketball in the playoffs. Yeah, I think, Mike, the Phoenix story is a perfect example of what you described. I think they were about 500, maybe 14 games into the season, and then they took off. And the Chris Paul story to me is fascinating. And two weeks ago, the narrative around Paul, one of the all-time greats, as we know, was that it was going to be another playoffs that he couldn't stay healthy throughout. And then, of course, things changed in the middle of that Lakers series, and now he's one win away from leading Phoenix to the Western Conference Finals. And this late career version of Paul, where he essentially goes in and renovates franchises, has really been something to watch. Uh, it, it certainly has. I, I was heartbroken when, you know, you saw the shoulder injury and you're thinking, oh, this, this guy is going gonna, gonna to have another year where his team gets knocked out because, because he's injured and he can't come close to being 100%. Uh, so his ability to deal with the shoulder injury, and now obviously it's, it's better. It's certainly not 100%. Um, he, he is, in, in 29 years calling NBA games, he's as competitive as any player, as any player. Uh, no, he's not as talented as Michael Jordan. He's as, as competitive. Uh, he's not as talented as Kobe Bryant. He's as competitive. Uh, and he is, without question, one of the premier point guards to ever play the game on any level. And, you know, even if he doesn't win – a championship, and even if he doesn't even make the finals, and, and certainly he has a chance for both this year, uh, to me that has no impact whatsoever on, on the kind of player he was and is, and the fact that he's doing it now when like three years ago people were saying he was he's kind of on the decline and can't play what he used to, 
he has completely turned this franchise around and, and, and he's done it in, in not only on the court, but in his leadership, which he's tweaked a bit because he was not always the easiest teammate. He was rough on his teammates. He was demanding. He expected them to be fighting as hard as he did. And sometimes he could be pretty rough with his teammates, but he's even softened that a little bit. And uh, it's really provided great results that the younger players and Monty Williams, the coach, have all talked about how much they've learned from him. Mike Breen, the voice of the NBA on ESPN, the voice of the Knicks on MSG Network, is our guest. Um, my favorite Knicks season of all time, Mike, was Riley's first, 91-92. And, you know, they didn't go to the finals. They didn't even go to the conference finals that year. But it's the unexpected seasons where there's a clear culture change that are, are kind of the most satisfying. And as I'm watching this past season progress with Tom Thibodeau and what Julius Randle did and the development of R.J. Barrett, there were a lot of similarities for me. It was probably my most enjoyable Knicks season since that one in 91-92. As you went through the ride, um, how enjoyable was it just to be a part of this just-completed Knicks season? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Pat. The, um, it was one of the more enjoyable ones that I've had in, in calling Nick games and one of the more enjoyable teams. And it was for a number of reasons. Now, certainly the emotion of where we were the past year with the pandemic and now all of a sudden we're back and, and, you know, late in the season, um, we're able to get big crowds there at the garden. It just, you know, it added to the emotion and, and the emotional part of the playoffs was, was really one of the, one of the most memorable things that I've ever had in that building. Those, those first two games in Madison square garden, even the fifth one. And, you know, even though two of them wound up in losses, they were just great, great games. Uh, but it's true. It's it's the teams that surprise you. It's the teams that overachieve. It's the teams that, you know, just they do so much better than the expectations were. And this team, you know, checked all of those boxes. Uh, and I think, you know, New York fans have always, always loved those teams, those overachieving teams. And especially with, you know, the drought that the Knicks have had of missing the playoffs for so many years in a row. Um, and not to, 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 to be fighting for a playoff berth, but to have home court advantage in the first round. I mean, there's nobody that would have, would have given you that. I don't even think if the players were, were being perfectly honest, they would have thought that they had a chance when you, when you started back in training camp now, uh, that they had a chance to be the fourth seed in the East. So it really was wonderful. It was a credit to, and the other part is a credit to so many people, the front office, uh, Tom Thibodeau and his coaching staff, uh, the players buying in, and even, you know, you got to credit uh, people like in the, in the, the training and medical departments that that had to do so much with the testing and make sure all the health and safety protocols were met. It was a really challenging year for a lot of people from top to bottom in the organization. And uh, they just did a great job of not only winning, but turning around the perception uh, around the league of where the Knicks are now. A couple more with Mike Breen before we let him go. Mike, uh, people like me who've been watching your broadcast for years know a couple of things about you. One is you don't like when the player holds the ball at the end of the quarter and doesn't get the shot off to preserve his field goal percentage. I don't either, by the way. I'm 100% with you. Um, we also know that you love the New York Mets, and I was just talking earlier about Jacob DeGrom, another six-inning shutout performance last night. I know you're not 100% tied in on the baseball right now, but as a Mets fan, have you ever seen anything like this guy is doing right now? Well, we've had, fortunately, and I say we when, when I talk about the Mets, uh, we have had um, some of the all-time great pitchers, um, Seaver, Gooden, and, and now DeGrom. And, and what he's doing is it's just it's remarkable. And, 
he's now become must viewing. So when he's pitching, no matter where you are, you've got to find a way uh, to watch. So if, even if I'm on the road, you know, I have, I have the app where I can watch the Met games in my hotel room. If you're home, you, 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 you make sure you're in front of the television set. I've been taping some of his games. Um, during his games, you're getting texts from all your Met fans all across the country and all across New York in terms of oh, he's, he's perfect through four or he's, he's got a no-hitter through five. It's just uh, it's really fun to watch somebody who has, has perfected his craft, and that's kind of the only way I can describe it. I mean, he's perfected his craft, and uh, it's just it's a joy to watch. And as a Met fan, you just can't wait for his next start. And lastly, Mike, I didn't actually get a chance to see you in person during this past season uh, and congratulate you, of course, for being the recipient of the Basketball Hall of Fame's uh, Kurt Gowdy Award for Electronic Media. Uh, my, my last question for you, now that you are a Hall of Famer, we're aware of the story growing up in Yonkers, you had a poster of Walt Clyde Frazier in your house. Now that you're a Hall of Famer, does Clyde have a poster of you in his home? <laughs> my, you know, one of, one of my, I, I said this over and over again, by the way, the, the poster, uh, my mother uh, still lives in the house I grew up in and the poster is still up in that house and, and will never be taken down uh, until they tear the house down. Um, but one of the joys of, of my life has been, you know, growing up idolizing Clyde and being one of my basketball heroes. Then all of a sudden I meet him. Then all of a sudden I'm his partner, and now we've become lifetime friends. I mean, it's somebody like me doesn't dream about stuff like that, and it has been wonderful. And, and part of the whole great journey of, of being a Knicks broadcaster is just so enhanced by, by being able to sit next to him night in and night out. It, it's something I never take for granted, and, and I've been, been so blessed to be able to, uh, to say he's my partner and he's my friend. Yeah, well, you guys are one of the best teams to ever do it. Um, Mike, thanks so much for taking a couple of minutes today. Looking forward to Nets-Bucks tomorrow and watching you and your guys throughout the rest of the playoffs. Thank you, Pat. Always good talking to you. You too, Mike. Thanks a lot. Mike Breen will be on the call. Nets-Bucks tomorrow, Game 4 from Milwaukee, 3 p.m. Eastern time on ABC. Pat O'Keefe back with you, 98.7 ESPN New York here on Saturday afternoon. Football season feels a little closer this weekend. Mini camps this past week throughout the NFL for the Giants and for the Jets. Optimism most certainly in the air. How much of it is warranted in Florham Park anyway? Let's find out. Rich Samini, who covers the Jets for ESPN, joins us now. Rich, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, not often you get to talk football this time of year. <laughs> it was interesting this week, and I, I do feel that optimism is in the air. And, uh, you know, obviously football not the center of everyone's attention. It is the center of your attention. So let's get an idea of what uh, your first impressions were. And, and first of all, Rich, before we get to the big picture stuff, as far as what you learned, interesting storylines, let's get right to it. How did Zach Wilson look? Well, I saw about a half a dozen practices from the time he was drafted. And uh, I can, you know, the positive thing is he didn't have any, like, really bad days. You know, sometimes I've seen rookie quarterbacks just come in and have one of those days where they throw three picks. He didn't have any of those, at least not that we were at present for. So that's an encouraging sign. You know, he had some uh, fair days, uh, a couple of very good days. He has a very quick release. I'd say he has a quicker release than Sam Darnold, who had that elongated throwing motion. I think Zach 
the release from what I could see, very compact, uh, very streamlined. His mechanics are really good. Um, but, you know, these aren't, these aren't padded practices, obviously. There's no contact, obviously. They're scripted practices, so everything is almost orchestrated between the coaches. So, you know, it's really hard to get an exact evaluation. But, you know, from what I've seen, you know, he's what you would expect a number two pick in the draft to look like. You know, you see the arm talent. You just want to see him when the bullets start flying, and we're not going to see that until August. You know, Rich, sports narratives, I think, tend to be cyclical. About five to eight years ago, there was a narrative that said, you know what, coaching throughout all sports isn't overly important. But but in New York, you see recent examples of Tom Thibodeau changing the culture with the Knicks. Barry Trotz has certainly done that with the Islanders. Uh, Joe Judge, to a certain extent, did that last season with the Giants. You know, Robert Sala, you would love for him to be that kind of guy. Um, can he be that sort of culture setter that this franchise needs? Well, I, I totally disagree with that narrative from a few years ago. Coaching matters. It totally matters. I've seen the best of it, and I've seen the worst of it. You know, I was uh, Bill Parcells changed the culture as soon as he walked in the door. And then I saw guys like Rich Kotite and Adam Gates who could, who were just did not change the culture. It actually went in the other direction. So uh, Robert has the personality traits that you look for. He's outgoing. Um, he's player friendly. He seems to be very enthusiastic on the field. I mean, I think every time you saw him in the San Francisco, uh, you know, game on the sideline as their DC, he was excited, maybe too excited at times. And so I just see him relate to players, talking to players during practice one-on-one and then in groups and I think he's a real players coach and that's what this team needed it needed a a force uh, a a personable type guy who could galvanize the locker room because I just think the team was split the last couple of years between offense and defense his job is to galvanize it and so the positive the visible signs that I see are very encouraging Rich Samini ESPN's NFL Nation Jets reporter joining us on 98.7 ESPN New York Overall, Rich, what were your biggest takeaways from minicamp? Well, I mean, uh, you know, we talked about Zach. You know, I, I think the one player who just jumped out at me, I, I think he might have been the best player on the field, was Elijah Moore, their second-round pick, their wide receiver from Ole Miss. Uh, boy, he just uh, – you know, the Jets have had a recent history of, of drafting some pretty bad wide receivers. I won't go down the list. This is an extensive <laughs> list. I think he'll break that slump. He is really good. You know, he's small. Of course, we know that. But he's so smooth. He kind of reminds me, and this is going back a little bit for some of your older Jets fans, he reminds me of Santana Moss. Just like an undersized guy, but extremely smooth, fluid. He can change. His, his route running is expert level already. And he can change speeds in and out of his cuts, which which not every receiver can do. And it, it's just, you know, he's really good. He's got good hands. He's already developed a rapport with, uh, with Zach on and off the field. They've been hanging out off the field as well, which you like to see. And so he's the one guy that really, really jumped out at me. You know, Rich, you draft high enough in the draft year after year. At a certain point, there's an expectation to get a certain level of talent on the field. Um you know, Joe Douglas hasn't been here that long. It, it seems like he's done well in his two drafts. Um, you mentioned Robert Sala. Everybody seems to love him so far. He certainly does have a presence about him. 
it's been a while since Jets fans could feel confident that their franchise has gotten it right. Is it possible, though? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of this. Is it possible that this time, with the hierarchy that they have in place, that they've gotten this right? You know, I'm going to – I don't know. I mean, you you would think so. I mean, I think the one thing they have going for them is that I think they have a GM and a coach who are aligned philosophically. And I, I, I think the last time that happened was probably, you know, when Mike Tannenbaum was the GM and they hired Rex Ryan. Uh, they were – they were in lockstep when it came to football personnel. Uh, of course, they had some disagreements, but for the most part, they were in lockstep. And it just hasn't been that way for the last, um, you know, decade or so. And so I think they have that much going for them. I think Robert, and of course, Joe picked Robert, so it's his guy. And, you know, even though Joe and Adam got along pretty well, I don't think there was ever that simpatico because, you know, it was an arranged marriage that, you know, they came at different times and, and really Adam picked Joe. So it was kind of a weird dynamic, but I think they have that going for them. And so if you have that going right, that's a big plus, whether it comes down to picking the right players and coaching them right. And so I'm not going to go out on a limb here and say that Jets absolutely got it right because they have two very young people. I mean, Joe has only been on the job for two years. Robert is a rookie head coach. He's never been a head coach at any level. So I'm not going to say that the Jets are, are destined for greatness right now. I think it's a jury's still out kind of situation. Rich Samini, ESPN's Jets reporter with us. Mini camp in Florham Park, New Jersey this past week. All right, other, other spots on the field, Rich. Running back, there's a lot of names. Um, when Zach Wilson turns around to hand the ball off, who's he handing it to? Well, he's been handing it to everybody. I mean, they've been rotating guys through there. Michael Carter, the rookie, has been getting a lot of work. Michael P. Ryan's been getting a lot of work. Kevin Coleman. So it's been more of a rotation. I think that's what it'll end up being this year. I think they're going to use the committee approach. It's what this coaching staff is used to from what they had in San Francisco. They don't have a clear-cut number one running back. And, uh, you know, I don't know the last time they had, had that guy. I mean, Le'Veon Bell was supposed to be that guy, but we all know what happened there. And uh, I, I think Michael Carter is – is the most intriguing because he's the new guy. Um, I think he's going to surprise some Jet fans. He's not, he's not a, uh, I mean, he looks like a scat back because of his size, but he, he is an inside runner. If you watch his college tape, I think most, he averaged eight yards per carry between the tackles at North Carolina. So he's not just one of those gadget guys, you know, who has to get the ball on third down or in space. I think he's a tougher runner than, than perhaps meets the eye. So I'm, I'm really excited to see him in the preseason. But, you know, in the running, this is basically a passing camp that they're going through right now. So it's really hard to get a good gauge on the running backs. Were you able to get a gauge at all on the offensive line? Obviously, that's going to be important. They, they clearly made an emphasis to try to build that up as much as possible for Wilson, especially on the left side of the line. You know, what are your thoughts on where the O-line stands right now? Well, I think a lot depends on Makai Becton's status. You know, I saw him the other day on the practice field, off, way off in the distance, doing some very, very light footwork drills. Uh, we know he's got the plantar fasciitis on his foot, and so he's going to be out. Uh, I, I'd be shocked if he did anything in this week's mini camp. There's no point in rushing him on the field. So I think they want to keep him off his feet. But, you know, he's got the weight issue. And I think, I think Robert Sala, in a very diplomatic way last week, suggested that 
Makai needs to do a better job of conditioning. And, uh, he's, you know, young players have to learn this, especially when you're 360, 370 pounds. And I know he ended up last year in the 380 neighborhood. So he's got to cut down to in the 360s because that's the only thing that will stop him from being an outstanding player because he's special. If he's out there and he's healthy, they have a chance to be a pretty good offensive line. I, I do think they're still interested in acquiring Morgan Moses, the uh, former Washington player now a free agent they had him in for a visit i do think there's mutual interest there i would keep an eye on that one because he would be an upgrade at right tackle over george Fant and uh elijah Vera tucker uh they're very very high on him i i can tell you of all the scouts and personnel people i talked to before the draft it, it, there were a lot not one of them had a negative comment about elijah Vera tucker and usually Every scout, the cranky ones, will always say something negative about a guy. I couldn't get anyone to say anything about negative about him. So he was a top ten player on the Jets draft board, and they're thrilled to have him. Yeah, good value for where they got him. Also, uh, Rich Samini covers the Jets for ESPN. Um, yeah, I, I know it's hard to get a grasp on these guys. All the media sessions are still done over Zoom, and, and I, to a certain extent, I'm sure that still takes getting used to for you, Rich. But you know, what have you learned from what kind of guy Zach Wilson is? I mean, what, what's he like? Does he does he remind you of anybody? Well, I mean, he's he's pretty mature. I mean, you, you know, you look at him; he looks like he's in you know junior high school, but he he does have a maturity about him. Um, he you know he. He has, as you say, oh, he came from a small market in Provo. He played at DYU. He's not going to be accustomed to the big media. But there was a pretty big – it was a fishbowl there at BYU. That, that, I don't know if the fans in our area can appreciate how big BYU football is to that area. So he was under a media spotlight. It'll be nothing like New York, but he had some experience dealing with it. And so I, he comes across as a mature guy, compliments his teammates, when I asked him point blank a couple of weeks ago, do you expect to be the starter? He, you know, he, he deflected, you know, and said, that's not even my concern right now. And he, he answered it the way you're supposed to answer it. And so uh, that impressed me about him. He's probably a little more glib than Sam Darnold. Sam was a, was a good guy and everything, but Sam really stuck to the, the script, the cliche script. I think Zach is a little looser, probably a little more candid in that respect. What percentage do you put on at him starting week one? Oh, he's starting. Yeah. I mean, well, who's the backup? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, that's a good question. <laughs> who's the backup? You know, unless Zach is injured, you know, he'll be the opening day starter. They've, they've essentially cleared a, a pretty wide path for him to get that starting job. He's getting all the first team reps now. And, you know, James Morgan and, and, and Mike White are getting the backup reps. And uh, neither one of those guys is ready to be a backup in the NFL. I mean, they've had some uh, some rough days out there. I, actually, the other day wasn't too bad, but they got to get an experienced guy. I, I think Nick Foles makes a lot of sense in Chicago. You know, he doesn't belong. You know, he's the odd man out. You know, they have uh, Justin Fields and, and Andy Dalton now, so – there's really no room at the end for for Foles, and so I think they're either going to cut or trade him. If I were the Jets, I'd give up like a future seventh round pick for him, and maybe they could uh, rework his contract a little bit, have the Bears eat some of that guaranteed money. So he's the perfect guy because he's got starting experience. He knows Joe Douglas. They were together in, in Philadelphia. He's a team guy. He's not going to create waves. He understands Zach would be the guy. He'd be perfect. The other guy to watch out for is Nick Mullins. 
of course, knows the system from San Francisco. He is a free agent. He is uh, recovering from elbow surgery that was from January. But I'm told that he will be uh, able to go for training camp, so it's possible the Jets are waiting on him. Those two guys, they got to get a veteran. I mean, I think I looked this up. The last time a team went into the season without a quarterback on the roster who played in a game, it was back in 2013. It was actually the Jets and the Bills did it that year. And so it just doesn't happen that often in the NFL. You have to have an experienced quarterback. Yeah, I was thinking Washington, too, with uh, Robert Griffin and Kirk Cousins, but I think that was even earlier than that, perhaps. So, yeah, I, I agree 12. with you. The Jets, yeah, the Jets, of course, with Geno Smith and, and uh, Matt Simps in, in 13 yes. in Buffalo. That was They had uh, the Florida State kid is escaping my name. Oh, right EJ now. Manuel. Uh, yeah, EJ Manuel and, and another uh, rookie. So, yeah, I mean, what they did, the Jets, actually what they did was smart. They, they didn't have a veteran on the roster for the spring or mini camp. So that means all these young guys get all the reps, which is good because they need it. And so now, uh, you know, once this mini camp gets over this week, you know, now it's like, okay, they had their time. Go out and get a veteran. Last one for you, Rich. Two parts, though. Uh, on the defensive side of the ball, we should address that. Um, what is the strength of the defense right now, and where are the biggest holes? Well, the strength is going to be the defensive line, you know, with the additions they made and with Carl Watson joining uh, – uh, Quinn and Williams, and, you know, they brought in Sheldon Rankins, which I thought was a good pickup if he's healthy. So they're going to have a pretty good uh, front four, and that's what this defense needs. Uh, I mean, Jeff fans have been used to Greg Williams, who blitzes so much. I think Greg was among the league leader in blitzes over the last couple of years. This is a different philosophy. This is, you know, you're relying on your front four to get home. That's why the Jets made so many investments, even even recently, signing Ronald Blair from San Francisco. Uh, it's all on the defensive line to generate the pressure. Uh, you know, the linebacking core, to me, is a big question mark. You know, T.J. Mosley actually looks pretty good in, in practice. He looks like he dropped a little weight. He's moving pretty well. He appears to be healthy. Uh, but he hasn't played football in basically two years. And the other linebackers are question marks to me. The cornerbacks are very iffy. That's, they have to get they have to get out, go out and get another veteran cornerback because that is a a big big concern. So the defense, this is going to be a transition year. It's a totally new scheme, and there's a lot of new personnel, and there's really not a lot of top line talent on defense. Rich, great stuff. Thanks for the time, and it'll be really interesting to watch them continue to piece this together. Oh yeah, this will be piecing. They'll be piecing right up until the final cut for sure. Thanks a lot, Rich. All right, take care. Rich Samini, ESPN's NFL Nation Jets reporter all over the Jets. Great job by him as Jets head minicamp this past week out at Florham Park, New Jersey. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. God, if you told me that Brooklyn would score 83 points on Thursday night in Game two, game 3 in Milwaukee. After at one point in Game 2 in Brooklyn leading the Bucks by 49 points. I was there for Game 2 at Barclays Center. It was unbelievable. And I'm just sitting there with my mouth open at the ridiculous efficiency of this team. And Durant and Irving and Joe Harris. Bruce Brown was great that night on both ends of the floor. And you have this Bucks team with a guy in Giannis who's won the MVP two years in a row. Chris Middleton, who's an all-star. Drew Holiday, who's an all-star level player. 
and a team that's considered at one point to be a contender for the NBA championship, losing by 49 points in a playoff game. But then it's amazing. They turn around with their season on the line on Thursday night and held the Nets to 83 points. Now, it got hairy at the end. And uh, if Brooklyn made some smarter plays at the end and gotten the ball in the hands of the right people, I do think they would have pulled out game three, but they didn't. So tomorrow's a huge game, game four, Nets and Bucks from Milwaukee, 3 p.m. Eastern on ABC. Mike Breen, who we spoke with last hour, will be on the call, Jeff Van Gundy uh, and Mark Jackson as well. It's Pat O'Keefe with you on 98.7 ESPN New York, 1-800-919-3776. We'll get into some Giants conversation in a bit with Jordan Renan, who covers the Giants for ESPN. Yanks trailing the Phillies 4-2, top of the third in Philadelphia. And the Mets on top of the Padres 2-0 as they are now into the bottom of the fourth inning. Let's go to Ray in the Bronx checking in. Ray, what's going on? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I want to talk about football. How you doing, by the way? I'm good. How you doing? I'm all right. Over here in the Bronx, you know. Uh, I want to talk about my Dallas Cowboys. I'm a big fan. I've been a fan, a fan since I was small. So, you know, a lot of people have, you know, different opinions about Dak ever since he signed that contract. And I'm telling you right now, my opinion, they're going to go to the Super Bowl this year. That's my prediction. I'm just saying that people are doubting him because he signed a big contract. I think it was right. Um, the team, they got a good team, and I think, I'm pretty sure. No, I'm pretty sure they're going to go to the Super Bowl. But, uh, you know, people have doubts. And I don't think he has to go to minicamp, you know? No, I agree with that. I mean, he's coming off a devastating injury. Uh, I don't think it's yeah. a bad contract. It's a lot of money, obviously. Uh, he's put up some prolific numbers, and he was having his best statistical season before he got hurt last year. For the most part during his career, um, Dak's numbers have translated to wins for the Cowboys. But, Ray, I mean, when you talk Super Bowl, I mean, their defense, outside of the Dak injury last year, their Uh, defense was so bad. It was so bad. I know. know. That's not a Super Bowl-caliber defense. You don't think I'm – am I predicting the wrong thing, or what do you think? Well, I wouldn't say that the Cowboys are going to the Super Bowl. So if you're asking me if by making that prediction you're predicting the wrong thing, I would say yes. I mean, I think they should win the division. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go with that. I'll go with that because a lot of people, you know, they, they put them down. And, you know, they, they talk about other teams, but they put these guys down. And these guys got a talented team. They do have a talented team. There's no doubt about that, Ray, and I appreciate the call. But they've had a talented team for years. It's been the same old story for years and years with the Cowboys. I mean, last year, I remember the preseason power rankings had them, like, in the top five. And, yeah, were they the most talented team in the NFC East last season, probably, before Dak got hurt, of course. And then they did make a run, and they almost won the division anyway with Andy Dalton at 6-10 and 10 before the Giants beat him on the final day of the regular season. Um, but that was maybe the worst division in NFL history, at least since the current alignment of the eight-team divisions. It was definitely the worst division in history when you have Washington winning it at 7-9, and nine, Giants and Dallas at 6-10, and 10. Eagles at 4-11-1. But look, you could say the same thing this year. Dallas 
on paper, but it's always on paper, on paper, on paper, on paper. Dallas is like the Lakers, all right? They're like the Yankees. They're inherently going to be talked about more on the national landscape because their fan base is so far-reaching, and they're interesting. They're an interesting franchise, and there's a lot of people throughout the country, not just in the Dallas area, that are interested in that franchise. The Yankees get that, the Lakers get that, and the Dallas Cowboys get that. But every year, it's the same thing. Even before Dak got hurt last year, they were underperforming. Their defense was so bad. Now, could they win the division this year? Yeah, I think any one of those four teams can win the division. Dak Prescott, if he's healthy, is the best quarterback in the division. So you start right there. You have a leg up on everybody just by that. He still has the skill position players around him. Again, it's going to come back to the defense. 1-800-919-3776. Simon checking in in New Haven. What's up, Simon? Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Okay. I wanted to make uh, uh, talk about the Yankees. Um, I was listening, you know, John Sterling, the broadcaster, he came up with a pretty good idea about the Yankee lineup, about, you know, particularly about Miguel Andahar. You know, he, I, I really think, you know, he said that Andahar should bat second, and I really think he should because, you know, Andahar is unstoppable. I mean, nothing against Judge, but, you know, LeMayu and um, Andahar and then Judge and Stanton. That'd be perfect because, you know, he's been hitting the ball like crazy, Andahar. And Duhar is starting to hit the ball very well uh, with increased reps. And thanks for the call, Simon. Uh, and Duhar uh, has a base hit today. Where's he in the lineup today? He's, he's still batting seventh. And they're in the National League Park, so there's no DH today. But he's starting in left. He's batting seventh. He's got the batting average up to 278. The OPS is up to 733. Uh, yeah, I mean, look at the Yankee lineup today. LeMayhew, Judge, and, and look, the Cashman slash Aaron Boone hierarchy like Aaron Judge or John Carlos Stanton, your quote-unquote best hitter in that number two slot. You know, Glaber's hitting third today. Gio Urshel is hitting fourth. Gary Sanchez, who's been hitting well, is batting fifth. But here you go. This is where it goes off the rails. Rugnet Odor batting 183 is your number six hitter. And then Andujar and then Gardner, who's actually got his average over 200 up to 216. The Yankee lineup stinks. I mean, let me, let's be honest. The Yankee lineup stinks. LeMahieu's not hitting. Torres is starting to hit a little. Urshela is what he is. If you get 275 and a 760 OPS from Gio Urshela with his defense, you'll take that. Sanchez is starting to get better, but what a hole he dug himself in. You know, they need Stanton to hit like Stanton. They need Luke Voigt to come back and to hit like Luke Voigt. They need DJ LeMahieu to hit like DJ LeMahieu the last couple of years. And they need something out of the outfield outside of Andujar and Judge. I mean, that center field spot has been a wasteland between Brett Gardner and Clint Frazier. And Aaron Hicks, before he got injured and was lost for forever once again, he wasn't hitting either. Look, the Yankees, I, I say this every single time I'm here, the Yankees are a stale franchise. And on the off chance they do hit and they do put a couple of runs on the board, then you get a performance on the mound today like Jamison Tyone, who got one out, gave up five hits, four runs, and was taken out in the bottom of the first inning after throwing 34 pitches. The Yankees right now are a team that's running in place. Should Miguel and Duhar move up in the lineup? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Is that going to change things dramatically for the Yankees? Absolutely not. Jordan Renan, Giants reporter for ESPN, will join me next on 98.7 ESPN New York.
Pat O'Keefe back with you on this Saturday afternoon, 98.7 ESPN New York. And in the midst of the NBA playoffs and the Stanley Cup playoffs, both with a local presence, the Major League Baseball season, of course, we are sitting here on Saturday afternoon talking about football. Mini camp last week for the Giants in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So it's a good time to check in with ESPN's NFL Nation Giants reporter Jordan Renan. Jordan, it's uh, been a couple of months for me to speak with you. How you doing? Thanks. I'm good, man. How you doing? I mean, this is like a summer break, basically. You know, they say break mini camp. Uh, I know the Giants have a couple of OTAs left, but uh, for media, we're we're done for the we're done for the summer, basically. And it's a see see a training camp. That's that's where we're at. So life is good. It feels a little closer. It, it was nice to see them parachute in for a few days this week and, and uh, get some thoughts on what you saw out there. And I'll just kind of leave it big picture with you to yeah. start. Uh, you know, what's the biggest thing for you coming out of minicamp? I think it's when you look at it and you look around the field and look, they still didn't have all their weapons. And Saquon's still hurt. You know, he's, he's still rehabbing, so he's not on the field. Uh, Kyle Rudolph, uh, he's also rehabbing, not on the field. But you look at the Giants' offense, and Daniel Jones is throwing the ball around. And on one side, there's Sammy Gallagher. On the other side, there's Darius Slayton. In the slot, there's Sterling Shepard, right? Evan Ingram is is working the middle of the field. And then Kadarius Tony isn't even basically with the with the you know the starting unit. He's he's catching passes from Mike Lennon. And you realize, oh my God, they actually have a, a nice, significant group of weapons it's not like last year when the, you know they tried to shoehorn evan ingram as the number one target no the giants offense has a lot of significant proven right it's not for the most part i mean aside from a Kadarius tony but it's not like you're hoping okay here's a draft pick he was okay his rookie year let's hope he you know grows and is good at picking. no you know you have some some legitimate good players in the nfl and that that gives you some optimism for an offense they quite frankly stunk last year. 31st in the league in offense and points. Only the Jets scored fewer points than the New York Giants last year. Those names are so interesting, and that's been such a big theme, and obviously an emphasis of Dave Gettleman as he put together this roster is putting those weapons around Daniel Jones. And, you know, assuming Rudolph can right. come back and Barkley can come back and you can get something out of those guys, I mean, this is this is enough talent. This has to be enough talent for Daniel Jones, right? No excuses, right? No, none. I mean, you can't be as bad as last year's. It's just not. It shouldn't be an option. That begs brings me to the other question mark on that side of the football as well, and that, of course, is the offensive line. Where do we stand with that? Yeah, well, that that's the one part where you say, okay, they are sitting there hoping. They're saying, okay, well, we hope you know Andrew Thomas makes the leap in year two. We hope Nick Gates in the second year as a starter really, you know entrenches himself as a quality player in this league. Uh, Matt Parrott, they're hoping, starts at right tackle. They're hoping all these guys get better, improve Shane Lemieux in his second year. So there's a lot of crossing your fingers there, right? And that's that's why that's the one group you you are. I mean, it's legitimate. You can sit there and say, you know, you have confidence in these guys, sure. But, I mean, you have to be realistic and say that's the one area where you're you know, holding your breath, crossing your fingers, hoping that those guys do make that take that next step, and they're at least serviceable enough to make sure that those weapons can do damage. I mean, that that's that's going to be a big part of. All right, the Giants' offense is going to be better. How can you not be better when you're essentially? Let's just from a macro picture, you say, okay, they add Kenny Galladay and Saquon Barkley to an offense, just those two alone. 
right? If you're adding those two alone, you're, how can your offense not automatically be better, right? The, the idea is, okay, now the offensive line. How good can this offense actually be? That They can tap that growth, that offensive line group, and, and it, it, it's all contingent on how much they allow all the rest of those weapons we named before to make this offense better. Jordan Renan, ESPN's Giants reporter. This is something I've wondered, Jordan. Look, Joe Judge was one of the biggest winners of last year. I mean, the bar, and you and I have spoken about this, the bar was set so low <laughs> by Pat Shermer. Uh, the team was yeah. more competitive, but they were still 6-10. and 10. Um, Is it a foregone yeah. conclusion? Because it seems to be. You're around this team all the time. Is it a foregone conclusion that Joe Judge is a really good coach? Look, I, I don't know how you can sit there and say it's a foregone conclusion. Like these things, you have to let these things play out. Like there's, everyone's optimistic in the spring, right? Everyone's undefeated. Every team is optimistic. They're going to be better. They're going to be good. <laughs> but until you go out and do it and you, you put positive results on the field, and there was definitely a lot to like. I mean, and I see the way Joe Judge works, the way he talks, the way he relates to people, uh, the way he's able to get a buy-in from all these guys on the roster. And these are all positive signs. And so, I, do I think he it's a foregone conclusion? Or I shouldn't say, do I think he's going to be a good coach? Yes, I do. Is it a foregone conclusion? We have to see it, don't we? Like, don't we have to see them have a winning record at some point before we can validate anybody on this roster from the quarterback to the head coach to even, like, you know, the, the drafting of Saquon Barkley, which we could sit there and argue over you know, for days, and we have for years, basically. Like, all these things. they gotta, they got to win. you got to have a winning season. Then we could say, sit here and say, Daniel Jones is a good quarterback, you know, good quality starting quarterback. Uh, Joe Judge is a good quality head coach. And until we get to that point, you know, it, it's all just wishful thinking. And, you know, you say there, there's positive signs that it's trending in that direction, but we don't know for a fact that that, that is the case. The defense last year, Jordan, you know, huge praise for Patrick Graham. Uh, Brad Berry had an all-pro season or a Pro Bowl season. Leonard Williams had a career year. They kept the Giants yeah. in a lot of games. The Giants team that, as you just mentioned, was the second lowest scoring team in the NFL. Has the defense gotten better this year, and where do they still need to improve? Uh, th that edge rusher spot is, is the one thing you look at. And, look, they were really good last year, especially considering – they had some weak spots on their defense, but they were able to hide it. Uh, and they did fill one of those spots in the, the you know, second cornerback spot opposite um, James Bradbury. Is, you know, they signed Adoree Jackson to a big, lucrative contract. And whatever you want to say about Adoree Jackson, he didn't play great at the end of his Tennessee tenure. I mean, he's better than the guys that they were throwing out in that starting spot last year, which, by the way, it was like five or six different guys started in that spot. And I spoke to somebody from another team, and he told me that played the Giants last year. And they told me, you know, the game plan when we played the Giants was just, you know, throw it at, court, you know, CB2, the second cornerback. And he's like, everybody, that's what everybody's plan was when you played the Giants last year. Like, you just go and attack that guy. That's how they, the game plan that other teams went in with. Uh, so they filled that spot. But the edge rusher spot, like, they have some nice young guys now, but we don't know ultimately what diseases are. You know, Ojalari is, right? second round pick i mean you're hopeful uh you know he could become a good player you're hopeful lorenzo carter could come back from a torn achilles uh so that's the one spot that you wonder if the giants last year and like you said leonard williams 
the best year of his career. James Bradbury, best year of his career. Did they kind of max out last year? And is there sort of like uh, a regression to the mean naturally this year? So, like, maybe they have a better defense and they're a better unit overall in regards to talent. But are they, can they be significantly better? Can they be a top-five unit if they don't have that dominant edge rusher? It's a great like point. I know Leonard Williams could rush a little bit from the interior, but you tell me. What do you think? you think there's a – can you be a top-five defense without that dominant edge rusher that scares the heck out of opposing teams? No, most likely not. And historically, the Giants themselves yeah. have not been that type of defense without that player. Well, they, they've had that kind of player, fortunately for them. Over their history, right? The Lawrence Taylors of the but that, world. But that's when they were uh, a top Michael, five defense. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, they've been fortunate. They, they've been in that case. So, unless one of these guys develops into that, I'm not sure they're going to – they can – even though they might have a better overall roster defensively, that they can make that jump that you really would love them to make. And say, okay, this is going to be a dominant top five defense. In the, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little hesitant at this point, but we, we'll see when the summer comes around. We'll see what – you know, Aziz Ojolari is. We'll see what Ellerson Smith, who they, they just drafted, we'll see what these guys are. Maybe one of them does pop and becomes a difference maker, and that would be that would go a long way into helping this Giants defense make that next step. No, I know, and it's tough, and I know I'm asking you to make these assessments based on, you know, three days of minicamp this past week, uh, but that's all we have to go yeah, by. Know, let, me just say, let me just say this real quick. <laughs> the coaches tell you this all the time, is that this is like they're out there practicing in shorts and underwear in the spring. So you can't evaluate anyone that involves, like, any lineman of any sort. So, and then edge rushers are kind of in that group. So basically the spring is like a passing camp. So that's why we started with the wide receivers and the weapons because you really can't make a judgment on, on linemen of, of what you see in the spring, and that's why I'm sitting here saying you hope these guys are better, but nobody really knows. We had Rich Samini on last hour. He used the exact same phrase. It's a passing camp. So you guys are in lockstep there. Um a couple quick ones for you, Jordan. Jordan Renan covers the Giants okay. for ESPN. Uh, yes or no, sink or swim season, Dave Gettleman? Yes. I mean, you can't well, – he was 15 wins in three years so far, I think it is, the total. Right? I mean, come on. Can't, can't have another, another bad losing season uh, and be able to survive. This one might be a little trickier. What about Daniel Jones? A lot's at stake for him. He needs to play significantly better. Uh, he needs to prove to them he's at least a, a quality starting quarterback in the NFL. So a lot of pressure on him. Uh, I, I, he can't play like he did last year, and the Giants with two first-round picks feel confident about their future with him. What can we expect from Saquon? <sighs> history, recent history of guys coming back from torn ACLs is pretty positive. So I, I think you should feel good about him coming back and being a dominant, you know, high-end player. The, the question I think we're facing right now is the Giants are intent on bringing him along slow. When are we going to see that? Is it even week one? Is it going to be the first, you know, first four games they, they bring him along slowly? He's only playing 50% of the snaps, and it's not until like the first quarter of the season's over, although I know the 17 games now just throw, you know, it doesn't – all these terms we've used for years just don't work anymore like – Hey, you know, 500, there's no such thing as a 500 team, Pat. That's impossible. You know, like all these things that we've come to know about the NFL, like, you know, the first quarter of the season. No, it's not really the first quarter because it's 17 games. So, yeah, I mean, but that's the thing with Saquon is uh, 
we're not sure with that, those first four weeks of the season exactly what you're going to get. But I think eventually, be patient, you'll get that dominant Saquon Barkley that everybody wants to see. I agree, by the way. That is frustrating, the 17 games. It throws so much stuff out of whack <laughs> for how we've always described it. drives it. me nuts. They're going to be 9-8. and nine and eight. No, we're 9-7. 8-8-1. 8-8-1 is 500. You can. You go eight. You can. You're right. I it's think we possible. consider that, yeah. So <laughs> that's a 500 team. That and only that. What what about what what gets done if anything with Saquon's contract situation before the start of the season? Before the start of the season, nothing. He's nothing got to okay. come back and play a little bit. Nah, he's he's got to come back and prove that he's healthy and show that he could be the same player a little bit before before anybody's going to make any sort of long term commitment. I mean, it, it, look, it, it, if the Giants came out and signed him before he got really back on the field and showed that he was the player he was before, that would be quite uh, the leap of faith in Saquon Barkley. And look, this isn't anything personal against Saquon. He's obviously a tremendous talent, but it's a position that's tough, right? No no other position are you getting tackled 200-plus times a year. You know, it's just a different beast. you You got to get back on the field first before anything happens there. I'm curious, did it feel more normal covering minicamp this year compared to last year? Is there a difference this season for you guys being out there? Well, we didn't even cover minicamp last year. True. Yeah, from the season alone. Like, Remember, last year we were still in the midst of the pandemic. They didn't have uh, any sort of on-field stuff. So, yeah, you know, we get, we actually stood out there without masks for the minicamp this week for the first time. So we're getting there. Still, we haven't gone to – uh, so, you know, in-person interviews, even with Joe Judge. So it's slowly getting there. It does feel more normal. Uh, everything on the field looks more normal than, than it did last year. It's just, you know, they're, they're at the point where uh, a lot of, most of the players are – I mean, all the, all the coaches, the Giants coaching staff, as far as I know, they are vaccinated. So uh, you don't see guys with masks on the field. And it, it, does, it does feel more normal, thank, thankfully. I mean, we hope – it just continues to progress in that direction. Have you ever interviewed Joe Judge in person? Uh, yes. That is opening press conference, probably? The, the, the senior bowl last year, uh, we met with Joe Judge. And at the combine, we did an interview with Joe. Yeah, Joe Judge did an interview at the combine last year. But that's kind of when everything shut down the last March. But let me tell you this, and this is a fascinating thing about where we're at. Think about how many new the, – the, the last time I was in a locker room for the Giants was the end of the 2019 season. So the turnover of the roster, I mean, I think it's 65 of the 90 guys are new since then. So that's 65 of the 90 guys I've never met face-to-face. It's, it's, so, it's unbelievable. Like Guys like that have been here a year and a half, I've never, I've never met them face Like I've never met Logan Ryan. I never met any of the rookies from that year. I never had a – I never really – I don't have any relationship with, like, an Andrew Thomas because we just haven't had the opportunity. It's just it's – it's, it's an interesting uh, dynamic for sure. No, it will be. And you got to go through that whole process of building up that rapport once you guys are allowed back in the locker room. So it's been interesting. But, Jordan, uh, it's good to talk football. It's good to talk Giants. And uh, always good to catch up with you. Thanks for a few minutes. Yeah, we'll do it again soon. No doubt. Have Jordan Renan covers the Giants for ESPN minicamp this past week out at East Rutherford, New Jersey. No more excuses for Daniel Jones. I mean, you got Kenny Galladay. You got Kadarius Toney. Darius Slayton's still there. Sterling Shepard's still there. Saquon Barkley's on his way back. You got Evan Ingram. 
Kyle Rudolph, hopefully he can help. You know, the offensive line is still a question mark. But, you know, it's it's funny. With the Jets and the Giants, and we've spoken about both of those teams this afternoon, they each had a clear plan during this past offseason to help out their young franchise quarterback. For the Jets, the priority was to build up their offensive line as much as possible and keep Zach Wilson safe, keep Zach Wilson standing upright. And for the Giants... It was get some weapons for Daniel Jones because the offense was so frustrating to watch last season. You know, and Darius Slayton, as a number one guy last year, proved that he's not a number one guy. But if Darius Slayton's your number four wide receiver, that's not too bad. And you slot him in behind Shepard and behind Tony, your first-round draft pick, and behind your big-ticket free agent signee Kenny Galladay. You got a couple of talented pass-catching tight ends in Rudolph and Ingram, and then Barkley. And then Barkley is Barkley's the key. I mean, Barkley's rookie season was one of the great running back seasons that we've seen around here in a very, very long time. And he had an injury-plagued second season, and last year he missed virtually the entire time. So we'll see. But the weapons are certainly there for Daniel Jones And yeah, it's a sink or swim season for Dave Gettleman. There were questions at the end of last season whether or not that would be it for him. I agree bringing him back for this season and giving him one more offseason to put this team together, but this is it. Because not only, look, what happens with the 15 wins in three years? When your team wins 15 games in three years, you draft at or near the top of the draft. So you are bringing in premier talent to your roster year after year after year. And the Giants aren't the L.A. Clippers from 1996 through 2010 where you can keep drafting at the top of the draft and keep being pathetic because you're the second team in town. The Giants are not the second team in this town. They're the Giants. And enough's enough. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.